This edition of the Supercluster podcast is powered by Dropbox. Here at Supercluster headquarters in New York City, we use Dropbox paper every day to produce our editorial content and this very podcast. Hello there, space fans, and welcome to a new edition of the Supercluster podcast. I have a very special guest in the house today, Michael Sheets, space reporter for CNBC. We're also good friends. Glad to have you here, Mike. Great to be on the pod. We usually meet up to have a beer and discuss all the many space activities going on. It's been a busy year. It has been a very busy year. Um, so much happening all the time. Right. I feel like if I was going to encapsulate the past year, I would say the commercial side of space is really booming. The business side. Absolutely. That's a, a big focus for uh, not only the companies in the industry who are benefiting more broadly from the push to private, but also from a lot of investors who are starting to pay a little more attention right. in public investors who see these companies coming to the market and actually being viable investment opportunities, considering them you know, as comparable to a software company, for example. Right. I think people like Jeff Bezos, recently he was at IAC and he's, he's made this comment in the past. He said, space is the next internet. Bezos is very bullish, yeah. as one might imagine, on the industry. And, mm. and it's a shame that people probably won't be able to invest in Blue Origin anytime right, right. soon. But yeah, that's absolutely a way to think about the space industry, if mm. you will. It's almost more of an environment than it is a specific economy. Mm -hmm. it, there's so many types of assets and so many different ways to utilize space that it's kind of difficult to put it in just one area and, mm -hmm. and and to boil it down to one industry is difficult but that's how you break it down right now is kind of anyone who operates or makes money off of space-based revenues and space-based operations that's that's the industry as a whole that's it and it's very broad it's very broad 400 billion dollars that range everywhere from satellite ground stations all the way to building rocket engines and I think part of this broad outlook on the business of space is the fact that a lot of these investments, or wouldn't, I don't want to say a lot, but uh, some amount of these investments are on projects that are, you know, a lot of times are in very early stages. Early stages, and I highlight the other thing that investors are concerned about mm -hmm. is the amount of risk. Right. So you have projects like Iridium, mm -hmm. which they've completed their Iridium Next network, a lot of capital going into it and a lot of investment, and it took a while for it to mature. So those sort of projects are high capital, high risk. And when they pull them off, as Iridium stock has done very well in this year, it, it you know clearly investors are fortunate, but there's so many other examples of companies that don't make it all the way even past you know major venture capital funding right. and don't pan out because of the amount of risk that's involved if it doesn't work. We've seen companies even be resuscitated. And a great example this year, I would point out, is Firefly Aerospace. Right. Those guys have come back from almost extinction and have now now they're really deep into testing and really working pushing hard to start servicing and, and launching their smaller rockets what about that company with the massive airplane well strata launch is a great example yeah. because that huge huge airplane did fly once right. and in some ways people might view it as a demo flight because there's been rumors circling around that they're getting another buyer i, I reported earlier this mm -hmm. year that they were looking to get about 400 billion dollars for it. And, wow. and my favorite part about that story actually is that as Strata Launch is a neighbor to Virgin Galactic, when the company was looking for a buyer of the airplane and Vulcan was looking to sell it, they actually spoke to Richard Branson, the founder of Virgin Galactic, mm -hmm. and said, hey, would you be interested in buying this? And he said, sure, I'll buy it for a dollar. Yeah, I did. I did see that on Twitter. <laughs> that company recently filed an IPO. Can you tell us a little bit about that? What that means? Absolutely. I mean, Virgin Galactic debuting on the New York Stock Exchange, albeit through a non-traditional means, but still through a well-known investor and um, what do you Chamath mean by that, Palpatia. Mike? So, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll back up and explain a little bit more. The the company went public through what's known as a SPAC or special purpose acquisition fund. Mm -hmm. And those types of funds are a little bit different in terms of how you take a company to the public markets because essentially investors back a single investor or an entity right. and saying, hey, we'll give you $500 million 
and you have two years to go and invest it in and take a company and acquire a company and take it public. So right. essentially, though the SPAC fund, those shares are actually already publicly listed, mm-hmm. and the company is just kind of waiting to do something with that capital. That's what happened with the SPAC of Chamath Palapatia, mm-hmm. who then acquired a forty-nine percent stake in Virgin Galactic. Right, and essentially at the completion of that merger. Virgin Galactic as a now combined entity with this SPAC had now went public. So it's not... So they went public by com- by joining with another company. Essentially, yeah, through, okay. through this merger. Mm-hmm. And it's a different way to approach it for mm-hmm. sure. And the stock has sold off a little bit in an environment that maybe people would expect to do a little better because the stock, you know, the overall stock market's at all-time highs. Right. But... It is an investment that is pre-revenue, essentially. Not even pre-profit, but pre-revenue. So Virgin Galactic, as a lot of their executives talk about, Virgin Galactic needs to hit commercial operations, and and they expect to in about six to nine months. Okay. Once they do that, they're going to start seeing revenues. And and the executives, especially the chairman, uh, Chamath, he's very bullish on the opportunity comparing it to software-like margins of 70% profit. Right. Because... And as Credit Suisse, I think, rightly pointed out recently in a note to investors, Credit Suisse said that this is a company who only a third of their costs from operating these spacecraft will be consumed by the revenue of just pure ticket sales. So on an operating cost basis, Mm -hmm. it looks like a pretty solid business. The the challenge is getting it up and running smoothly and steadily. They need to be launching these pretty regularly to get to the numbers that they forecast. I'd say the second thing that's notable about Virgin Galactic, especially in terms of the overall industry, mm-hmm. is that there, before them reaching the public markets, there was really no way for investors to play human spaceflight, which is the most exciting avenue. And mm-hmm. I'd say the thing that garners the most interest is but flying also- people to space. But also the most risk. The most risk, for sure, yeah. yeah, yeah. Because it's not just money that's at stake. It's not just equipment that's at stake, but it's human lives at stake. Mm -hmm. And Virgin Galactic, I'd say, is even taking on an even more challenging part of that human risk because they're not just flying astronauts. They're flying very wealthy individuals. Mm -hmm. So they really have to prove that this is a safe and reliable product. Do we know if there's any famous people who purchased tickets already? I did yes, hear. Um, I did hear that oh. Justin Bieber bought a ticket. Yes, really. Justin Bieber, I can confirm <laughs> that Justin funny. Bieber had bought a ticket on Virgin Galactic. There's a couple other big names in there, and a couple that I was surprised by, but I can't remember them off the top of my head right now. Well, let's hope they send him first. <laughs> Let's talk about SpaceX because they're not obviously a publicly traded company or anything. They're a private company. Very hesitant Um, about that. Yes. And you can explain why in a sec, but let's talk about their business and how they kind of helped open the door for this commercial industry. They first went to the space station in I think 2011 with the Dragon and they've been hitting many milestones. They've flown science missions for NASA, many resupply. I think we're up to 19 now. Yes, uh, coming, 19. Yeah, coming up wild. soon. So yeah, they've made pretty large strides in making that progress as a private company. I also want to name drop Bigelow. A lot of people give SpaceX credit for being the first private company to fly a spacecraft to the space station and dock and leave. But Bigelow now has a semi-permanent module that can be used and it is in use attached to the space station. 330 Yes, the beam. The beam. And it's something that people don't really talk about much, but I wanted to talk about it with you because from a business perspective, if Bigelow wanted to seek investors, isn't that a big selling point? Like, hey, yes, Elon can get to the space station, but we live there. Right, and and you and I both know, but Bigelow has the funds right. to continue. He's a billionaire. Keep Bigelow Aerospace. Yes. Right, he's not one of the flashier billionaires out there, but he certainly yeah. has the money to keep this project going. Right, on his own, and so he doesn't necessarily have to seek outside investors. Mm-hmm. That's a big reason why I didn't include them in this uh, investor guide that I wrote because it's hard to see. They always when, get left out. <laughs> <laughs> they always feel a little left out. It's hard to see when investors might get access to a company like them, or when they would be producing a product product regularly that produces revenue right however i think they wanted i think their next phase i I, we were all on that call mm -hmm. uh, a few months back one of their plans is to start facilitating payload access 
aboard the space station, sort of like Casis and other companies where you can like house a, a payload or a, a medical experiment or some any random payload in these blocks that Bigelow will own or lease or something. I'd almost call it space station servicing. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Kind of it. like how Apple has its servicing right, business, right. right? Same idea. Sort of facilitating these yeah. kinds of things on the space station, which is very broad of right. what people can do. But it does seem, and it's funny, the beam, when it launched, there was a little bit of a failure. It didn't expand right away. Right. And then we all went to sleep and woke up. It was expanded. It was like Christmas. Amazing. <laughs> I think one of the reasons, a lot of publicity around missions and, and the way business is done is around rocket launches. Cause mm -hmm. that's where you it's flashy, and I, it's sexy. flashy, sexy, it's loud, exciting. Mike and I have been to big launches like Falcon heavy. It's really fun. And even on Twitter, I mean, not to pat SpaceX on the back, but when we're doing SpaceX coverage, it's pretty it's pretty excited. amazing. I mean, I'll, I'll even shout out ULA. I mean, yeah, covering yeah. a ULA launch really is a fun. great, yeah. great time because right. those things are powerful, powerful rockets that people get very excited about. Yeah. So when you pin your science mission or your project to this big launch, and I think a lot of recent payloads have had success flying on STP2, which is like 25 payloads. Yeah. Amazing. Beam flew on CRS-8 the first drone ship landing ever. And it completely kind of pushed everything out of the media coverage. Everyone was writing about the, the, landing. the landing and right. just Everyone other couldn't stuff. believe it, yeah. this thing landed on a barge. Right. But yeah. on that mission was this beam spacecraft that's now like a room on the space station. And it's, it's just, I'm responsible because I think I actually, I wrote about beam and I didn't realize it. I, I wrote about it in passing, like covering the mission. Oh, hey, this thing's cool yeah. when it's on so, the space station. Um, yeah. When Bridenstine was being nominated for administrator of NASA, I went digging through his Twitter account to find dirt because that's what I do. And, uh, <laughs> and I found my beam article. He had tweeted it. He had tweeted and it. And I was like, oh, oh I did a beam article. Also, thank you. And I laid off. Yeah. I was like, all right, you do yeah. your thing, man. He's doing his good You've job. won me over. He's, yeah, doing a solid <laughs> job. Gotta love that. We're I, not going to get into Bridenstine yeah. here. I, I would say on that as well, mm. beam is a story that's great because of its long lasting effect. The right. longevity of that story is pretty amazing because it's something that even when... Bigelow is demoing the B-33, like mm -hmm. larger habitat. Mm -hmm. People, they still point to Beam and they look at, hey, this thing's been on space station. It's red, it's continually used. It was only supposed it's to last one year. Yeah, it was only supposed to last a year. And now it's like on year three. <laughs> it's crazy. So that's pretty cool. I mean, even when you have those really flashy mm -hmm. in, the, in the moment mm -hmm. things like the drone ship landing, mm -hmm. that's something that could have really important effects on long-term human space flight, right. people don't forget about those. Now, the reason I bring this up, Mike, is because we're talking about money and business. Mm -hmm. And space exploration, you might disagree with me, but I think a lot of it is driven by public interest and what congressmen know, what their constituents want. Yeah, um, you know, I mean, Alabama controls the space program. A lot of people would say that. But in going forward in the future, and just given your experience covering launches in person and on social media, how will coverage and just the presentation of these missions affect value? Do you think there'll be more attention to like producing these videos and producing these webcasts and just putting a production around every single, I mean, it's hard to sell CubeSats. It's not sexy. Yeah, it's not super but easy. How do you see that evolving? Do you see like, how do you see the marketing evolving with the business? The marketing side of things I think is fascinating because you've seen such an uptick in companies when SpaceX or ULA or anyone is launching their payloads, even you know, take a great example with ISRO in India. Right. Even when a proton launch is happening, I mean, you'll see American companies that have spacecraft, CubeSats on board, mm -hmm. that host like payload launch viewing parties. Yeah. And they'll, you know, watch the whole thing for four hours or whatever it takes. And they'll host all their investors. And this is something that you've seen. I've, I've seen, especially with smaller companies that are, you know, launching their first or first batch of satellites that they bring everyone together and they really blow it out. They really show it off. And I'd say that because launch live streams have become this staple, we just expect that every launch is going to be live. It has to be. And has the, only, to be. the only folks that don't really are the Chinese. 
Right. So for and for reasons reasons we we'll get to later. Understand. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I would say that the way I'd see it evolving is that that just continues to step up. Right. Where companies could either have part of the broadcast that's exclusive to them where they have exclusive rights to the video of their deployment of their spacecraft deployment and then they use that b-roll and really blow it out because you'll see launch recaps posted by companies a great example would be a small finnish startup called isi mm-hmm. when they launch their satellites they'll distribute video packages after the launch saying you know here's our satellite here's the one you can see getting deployed into space right so that kind of a trend of of pointing out exactly like you can see our hardware doing this right now and and the I, the visual aspect of it I mm-hmm. think is going to be increasingly pronounced. When you consider Silicon Valley companies, a lot of there's been failures uh, like Theranos and you know uh, others. Yeah. No, <laughs> uh, a lot of people would look at even companies like WeWork or Uber as failing in some aspects. But space exploration and you just mentioned the live cast and the webcast and everything that we see during a launch, a, a project's most critical minutes. You mean you can spend 10 years building a satellite, but those, that launch is the critical, that's you know, the critical moment there. How do you get the whole world to sort of pay attention to that? Because you have people doing business in space now, you people wanting to invest. How does that transparency also affect how people invest. Let's say we we do we show hardware going and let's say SpaceX was publicly traded and they launched a bunch of Starlink satellites and half of them blew up. Mm-hmm. Obviously that wouldn't be a good look for investors, right? Yeah. Or let any other company. So do you think companies might end up becoming less transparent, protecting more of their IP, protecting more of their technology? Because right now it a lot of these companies and launchers are showing a lot they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they show inside of clean rooms mm-hmm. and all sorts of things. I think I would back up a little bit mm-hmm. and I would focus on the definition of failure in the space industry. Right. And it means different. It means something different because this, to different companies. This, in, the, in, that's very true. And I'd say that uh, that also depends on the category and like what kind of mm-hmm. part, sector of the space industry you work in. But I would say on a, on a broad basis, the way the space industry defines failure is very different and the way people folks in the industry might define failure is different than how silicon valley and wall street define failure those guys when you look at companies that people are critical of today where they're not turning a profit take uber for example right people might criticize them because they say you're not turning a profit you're a failure that's why you exist as a company you know why you're not returning value to shareholders in the space industry, I would sit, point to that like failure is so much in just encapsulated in the idea of a technical failure or even a very explosive and public failure mm-hmm. of an equipment or something going wrong where your spacecraft falls out of orbit or burns up. Mm-hmm. That's something that's going to change when as more investors come into the industry. Because people are going to stop focusing on failure of, you know, did this hardware work or not? Because that's that's a huge part of proving out your product, which mm-hmm. is what the industry is doing in a lot of the younger companies. Right. But also start focusing on, wait a second, are you providing the revenue and profitability that we expected out of you? And so I- when... Virgin Galactic, two years from now, I mean, they, they're talking about pretty Im- impressive profit margins of, uh, of around 70%. Two years from now, am I as a reporter reading their quarterly reports, which are now public, going to see that they hit that 70% margin that they forecast to investors in July of 2019? That's the question that people are going to start understanding in terms of defining failure mm-hmm. is did you hit, hit your profit profitability goals? Because so many of these investors, I mean, it's $24 billion in private investment in the last nine or so years. That's coming from a small firm called Space Angels here in New right. York City. Those guys track $24 billion of investment, private investment in the last decade or so. That's an incredible amount of investment that those investors are going to be looking for a return on. And so those folks are all going to start pushing these young companies where we get a lot of exposure and get to see a lot of cool stuff out of these companies. Mm-hmm. And I think I don't think that'll change especially as they start to go public similar to how you know, you still see the inside of Ford's factories and you still see how Ford makes their cars. Right. 
you're going to still see how the bread is buttered here in the space industry. And maybe there's IP protection from a necessary standpoint from foreign actors or other various issues. Right. But I honestly think that you'll see more disclosure because companies, when they go public, are going to have to disclose more clearly, you know, okay, whether not just, you know, hey, we predict operational profitability or even just being cash flow positive, mm -hmm. but, you know, here's what our margin on a rocket launch is. That's a that's a number that's pretty ambiguous in terms of a lot of companies out there right now. Right. And as companies get pushed into the public market for need of funds and and really just trying to open up and grow, that I think you're going to start seeing failure defined a little differently. And uh, some companies are sort of pushing that message internally and externally too. I think one company being SpaceX has mm -hmm. really redefined what failure means to them right and sort of put out that message and that's a world. great example on the equipment side right where mm -hmm. they showed how their rockets failed they had right. a two-minute youtube compilation video that they mm -hmm. set to music right and posted online and said hey this is how many times we blew up a rocket yeah that's showing you how much their investors say you know what those are operational failures we can live with that it also you shows know? confidence right yeah it, it exudes that kind of confidence mm -hmm. but the investors are really wondering okay great like maybe it wasn't awesome that you lost a rocket this year or mm -hmm. that you know you weren't be able to you weren't able to recover this booster for example right but what's your margin still are you still profitable in this quarter do mm -hmm. you are you going to need to raise more funding that's those are the questions investors if they're comfortable with the company are you know they're very fine to live with those operational failures Mike, you recently had a fire thread on Twitter. It was a couple weeks ago. <laughs> you dressed up. You're wearing like a tux or something. <laughs> so Mike is recently married. Congratulations. Thank I wanted you. to shout Appreciate that, that out. Robin. It's always fun when a space person gets married. Yeah. Also, shout out to Lauren Grush, who got married. I didn't also, get to. Yeah. Yeah. Great, great year yeah. for space reporters to get married. Yeah. You know, yeah. So all of you are out of the running for first journalist in space. Did you know that? Wait. I made that rule up just now. <laughs> first single just journalist made, in space, maybe. I just made up that rule. Still going to get there. I'm still in the running. <laughs> but yeah, you went to this really amazing event. It was sponsored by a, a bank? A big mutual fund. Okay. So Barron's Investor Fund. Ron Barron's a very famous right. billionaire investor here in the city. And Gwen Shaw. Shotwell was one of the speakers that evening. Right. Barron's taken a pretty sizable position in SpaceX uh, quite a while ago. I mm -hmm. think five years ago now, if oh, I wow. remember correctly. And so... That's she, before landing days. <laughs> way before, before landing, landing days. days. And Barron typically has at least a couple of his headline investments. Their heads of their companies come and speak. So, That's really cool. Uh, this year was Gwen Shotwell was mm -hmm. the feature speaker to a packed house of course. at the Metropolitan Opera House wow. in Lincoln Square. Now, characterize Gwen Shotwell this evening for us. <laughs> I would describe her as... Uh, one of the most respected people in the space industry. Mm -hmm. uh, I hear nothing but respect for her on anyone you talk to. Mm -hmm. And she really has defined a lot of what SpaceX has going for it in terms of just this underlying driving momentum mm -hmm. where it's not just, you know, Elon Musk may have this really grand vision and really ambitious designs and yeah. you know, plans like trying to land a rocket on a boat. Right. Whereas Gwen Shotwell has so much more of this, you know, business acumen, this driving force and momentum as a leader where any of the folks I talk to, especially at the company about her, they just have this amazing respect and, and just willingness to follow her wherever she goes and, and whatever they're doing and put 110% in. Yeah, she has this gravity towards mm -hmm. her. Especially, I mean, you can even see it. Her comfort, her confidence when mm. she was speaking at, at this investor conference here in New York City, she just was really projecting how much confidence she has. And it was kind of surprised me even because I haven't heard her talk like this before. As the conversation went on, she got pretty increasingly candid about what she thought of some competitors. Well, she's rarely in a, in a platform to do that because when you're dealing with space exploration, you have to be a certain way. You have to, even though she does stand out from the crowd of mm -hmm. aerospace leaders by far, when you're in that atmosphere, you can't, you can't talk shit about your competitors or even the people. Well, and it's true know? that, and something that I would say a lot of people in the industry say is that 
as much as you compete against people and you work hard against people, in the next day, some of these companies might be partnering with you on mm. a new launch or working on a mission. Like a great example is, you know, SpaceX has probably launched more Lockheed Martin satellites oh, yeah. than anything else. There's been the, the Boeing and Lockheed logos have popped up on the SpaceX live stream. Exactly. So many it's, times. It's not yeah. it's not like these companies no. are unfriendly to each other. No, not have, at all. Yeah. So but it's also a pretty fierce competition at the yeah. same time. So they're not afraid to trade barbs and trade yeah. jabs. Sometimes we do see some ugly stuff on Twitter, but I would categorize it as friendly competition mm -hmm. at this point in time. Yeah. It's we'll going to change next year. <laughs> we'll see. And as the years go on, even especially given the business aspect of it. So yeah, Elon seems to be running the Starship project at SpaceX, which is their big Mars colonization effort. And we have Shotwell sort of driving this Starlink project right. and Starlink is supposed to, you know, their, their mission is to bring internet to rural areas, areas that don't have service. And just like a broad number on that, from what I understand about 49% of the world does not have access to regular internet, mm -hmm. like everyday internet, yeah. fast broadband. That, I don't know the number off the yeah. top of my head, but that sounds yeah. about right. Yeah. It's a, it's a pretty crazy number when you think about it. And uh, we take it for granted. We here. definitely do. That's uh, we complain true. when it gets like too slow to download. Uh, you know, I mean, you know what? Something. If my Netflix show starts buffering, yeah. I'm upset. I'm upset. Yeah, I'm upset. Same. So other people around the world and those who don't have the ability to purchase data. Yeah. They don't even have access. They don't period. even have access to it. But the people who do have to purchase data in places like Kashmir, India, Pakistan, mm -hmm. rural areas, rural. it's like $4.99, $5.99 American dollars per minute. Right. It's ridiculous. Very expensive. So that being said, this has been part of Starlink's mission, at least stated by SpaceX, to provide internet in areas that don't have access to affordable broadband. Let's put it that way. And I would say there's a lot of numbers. Mm-hmm. I would say there's a lot of numbers when it comes to Starlink. So let's drop them on us, Mike. Where, what are the numbers here? It's pretty expansive and, and ambitious mm. as a project. So you're talking about more satellites launched by one company more than any other satellite, any other country, all satellites in history. Period. Wouldn't their next launch make them... It'll make them the, I think, the highest operator of a satellite of Const satellites by any private company. Crazy. I'm pretty certain. Right. Yeah. Because they're going to pass stuff, planet. Yeah. Right. Uh, or it'll be pretty close if not. But publicly reported numbers, it should be be passing planet. So it's pretty bonkers from the scale. But I'd say that the numbers of why Starlink is important comes down to the financials, mm -hmm. which most people are pretty bored of. And people but hey, don't if find you're not bored, if you're not bored by the idea of getting to Mars, then you want to know what Starlink's purpose is. And, exactly. And, and so SpaceX has a pretty stable launch business. And while Geosats, and we can talk about all of like, you know, the rise and fall of that side of the industry, they, they still have a pretty stable launch business. And Jeffries last year estimated from numbers that look pretty good that their annual revenues from the launch business is about $2 billion. Mm -hmm. Now let's rewind about five months ago on a call before the first Starlink mission. Mm -hmm. Musk said that he sees that revenue for the launch business topping out at about $3 billion. So maybe increasing by 30% or so, but nothing huge, nothing that all these investors that are putting a bunch of money into SpaceX are really looking for, right? right. That's where Starlink comes in. He estimates that they're gonna 10X revenues of the launch business from the broadband servicing of Starlink. That would be somewhere around $30 billion of revenue a year. That puts them in the league of any tele, you know, major telecommunications network in the world and even could put them as a competitor, a serious competitor to some of the telecommunications companies here in the US. And that number you just dropped, I've heard it from so many different people in firms. Like that, this outlook is pretty positive. It is very positive. And it's obviously a pretty hypothetical number still. And well, it there's only been on one official launch of the only, only one right. real official launch than you know the, the other 60 previous that they launched. So mm -hmm. it's hypothetical both in the fact that they have to get all the satellites up and working. They mm -hmm. have to prove out a lot of parts of the overall network. And they have to figure out a way to distribute it effectively on the ground. I mean, that 
requires building the Starlink side of SpaceX's business into mm-hmm. a pretty substantial uh, operation. And when you look at SpaceX having around 7,000 employees right now, I'd estimate that less than 10% of those are working full-time on Starlink. So when you look at how, because you know so many of them are working on commercial crew and Dragon, when you look at what Starlink is going to grow into, it's going to be a behemoth. And whether or not it stays part of SpaceX in the long term, we'll see. But or it spins off. Yeah, it yeah. Could def- I could definitely see it spinning off it in the It seems like the kind of project that would spin off a bigger company. Absolutely. And so this is going to be in a pretty immense effort that we're really only on the forefront right now. And that's why I want to hearken back to the revenue number, because when you see crazy forecasts of what SpaceX is going to be valued at in the future and how much they're going to explode in growth, so much of that is based on how well Starlink works. And I think that revenue estimate of, you know, we see this being a $30 billion a year business, that's a very key number to keep in mind moving forward. How close are they to that target? Does that target move or not? You know, how much do they adjust that forecast in the future? Because that's going to be a huge determining factor in how well this all works. On top of those technical obstacles, SpaceX is facing a growing, angry community. The astronomy community mm. has been a, a lot of it's on social media, obviously. Yeah. There's been some op-eds here and there. A lot of people are saying that Starlink is going to disrupt the night sky. And eh, that's a whole other issue. Right. No, it's important. I wouldn't gloss over it too much. I think it's important. It's very important. It's one of those places where business intersects with the the more science and Mm -hmm. exploration side of things. And it's interesting to see SpaceX kind of caught in between. Where as a company who you know touts this vision of you know multiplanetary making humanity a multiplanetary species on one hand, Mm -hmm. and on the other hand, you know is going to need these satellites to generate revenue in the future. So they have to walk a pretty fine Mm -hmm. line here. Yeah. And I, I think it's becoming obvious that like sending humans to another world will likely be the most expensive project humanity has ever. I yeah made. I don't under I don't see any reason why not. Apollo was one of the most expensive projects mm-hmm. at the time, and I forget the number off my head, but it was pretty immense in terms of its overall scope. Yeah, and even the space shells. Very, expensive, very expensive over right. the whole course of the program. SLS. So I'm sorry, what? <laughs> I think you just sneeze a little bit. On yeah, the mic. I'm okay. um, <clears throat> I could definitely see, even as SpaceX touts how much reusability and especially full reusability would right. save money. And they're not there yet. They're not there yet. Right. And at the end of the day, Launching a lot of people and a lot of cargo to a, either the moon or Mars is going to be expensive. End of story. And that's why they need Starlink. Yeah, they need Starlink to generate that money. Mm-hmm. They need all these uh, future programs to prove their cost effectiveness. And a lot of companies, no matter whether even beyond SpaceX, the other companies in here that I'd especially mention, like Sierra Nevada Corporation mm-hmm. and Blue Origin, a lot of those other competitors are going to have to show, you know, why either using taxpayer dollars or investor dollars. Either way, there's someone to answer to, and you have to show why are we doing this, and what are the what's the future value that we're gaining from out of this. When I think of Starlink and what SpaceX has to do to make money there, they're they're going to have to get into marketing and advertising, aren't they? Mm-hmm. They're, they're selling. They're going to be selling a consumer product. Yeah, a commodity, right? Uh, and I'll be curious to see how how consumer it really is when right, it starts. Right, right, you know right. that it's this is speculative, mm-hmm. but it would make sense that they sell to say banks in larger clusters and then they resell them. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. banks and mm-hmm. in, in foreign governments that mm-hmm. don't have high speed internet access. Right. right? Tuning more people into mm. the multi-trillion dollar financial system would be a pretty obvious first step. So it, for a they could like basically this. wholesale it out, is what you're to saying. To a certain degree, yeah. yeah. I think the, especially the first couple of years of service, mm-hmm. they can wholesale it out between major sectors and in industry as well as governments. I mean, the first user essentially of right. Starlink, besides some SpaceX engineers playing video games, was the Air, U.S. Air Force testing right. out the broadband speeds to a flying aircraft. Is it true? I, I think that it was Joey Roulette from Reuters who told me that the Air Force would be Starlink's first real customer. I can totally believe mm. that. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. Mm. And, and knowing jo- Joey's credibility as mm. a reporter that... It was uh, the it, best call. Yeah. I would say that the really given does. SpaceX's relationship with the Air Force and how much of a, you know, Air Force is their lucrative customer. Government contracts Mm -hmm. are the most lucrative contracts in any industry. Right. So I think we're going back to 2015 now, but SpaceX had to sue 
to get the ability to work with the Air Force, and I, they beat I them. I think even 2014 was the first That's, filing. They start, they I think filed, they won in 2015. Yes, yeah. they filed in 2014, won the case in 2015, yeah. and that's when this new relationship oh emerged. Gosh. And ULA went from having a monopoly on defense missions to space and having to bid with SpaceX. And SpaceX has had a lot of national security missions. Recently, the X-37 mm-hmm. uh, came back, surprised everyone. That mission was launched on a SpaceX rocket. I, yeah, and I love that reusable space plane because the videos of it coming to land right. at Kennedy Space Center are mm-hmm. wild. Yeah. Because it's so tiny. Right. It's such a tiny little thing. It is. zipping in. And all I can think about is the mysteriousness of it all. Yeah. It, we don't know what was on board we mm. there's reportedly even some cube sets Cubes, that i saw jonathan of. i saw jonathan mcdowell at harvard oh my gosh complaining was, about yeah, that exactly so yeah. there's there's all these both potential as well as risks of all this and mm. then this thing comes gliding in it in the middle of night yeah you know after unbeknownst to anybody, a record time after in record Norway. time in space and it looks great i mean yeah. obviously we haven't heard anything besides you know the air force's right. press release right. but there could be some pretty amazing technologies that start spinning out of this program yeah and it's funny that came up boeing built that space plane yeah very impressive um, that was one of the cases where spacex had to include boeing footage and b-roll in their webcast I was with them at Cape Canaveral and also Joey Roulette. Yeah. While I think it was like 20 minutes before launch, the governor declared a state of emergency because Hurricane Irma was bearing down on the coast. So Joey and I did after launch, we waited and then we didn't stick around for mission patches because we needed to get water and sandbags (laughs) and find our families. And we did. It was awesome. Yeah, yeah, I'd say if anything, you know, is a good reason to miss out on mission patches, not getting blown away by a hurricane. Not dying in a hurricane. So that, and that's just a great example of Boeing, Air Force, SpaceX, all Mm -hmm. getting in on this mission. And uh, speaking of secret space, I wanted to segue into an article. You published this one today, right, Mike? Today, yeah. Yeah. So this story had kind of emerged on Twitter over a few days. Some videos had come in from China of their recent launch. Chris Gebhardt's going to kill me because I can't name the launch. He he has them memorized. Uh, well, so the, I think how you pronounce this is the Beidou, yeah. Beidou satellites. Yeah. Probably so let's go with that. Butchering that. I'm going to um, let Mike butcher that. But yes. let's go with the easier thing to pronounce is the rocket is the Long March 3 Long March 3 rocket. Right. That I know. The mission launched the other day. We covered it on Supercluster and on Launch Tracker. It's really hard for Chris to manage a launch tracker with Chinese launches because they're always, or most of the time, secret and sprung on us in an hour. We do still get them yeah. up, and Chris just does an amazing job. It's very difficult. Yeah, but after this launch, this particular launch the other day or yesterday, the first stage first of stage the rocket, yeah. usually, you see, we launch over water right. because we don't want to kill our citizens. Right, and if it's an expendable rocket, yeah. that the largest part of the rocket yeah. comes we don't hurling wanna, back to Earth yeah, we and don't smashes want, in the water. We don't, want, we don't pick that one one out of someone's chimney right you know what i mean so anyway this footage was really graphic and disturbing it shows rocket parts crashing into people's houses in the suburbs well so to be clear we have seen past footage of the actual booster falling and hitting the ground this was footage of of someone's house or maybe even multiple houses Mm. with booster remains and like on fire and on fire there's like a charred motorcycle Mm -hmm. it's pretty amazing and there's just uh, in a, in amazing, I say in a pretty in a visual sense. A visual yes, sense. absolutely. Yeah. Yes, and yes. Uh, even more than that, I mean, you can hear all the locals talking yeah. like very, very excitedly yeah. in the background. Yeah. I actually had one of my colleagues who Yunli. I'll give mm-hmm. her a great shout out. She helped me not only track down who posted that footage and get licensed. It for By the way, amazing us. reporting there because you got that angle. Thank yeah. you. And yeah. and but she and the angle that mattered was she got a copy of the ev- evacuation notice that was sent to all the residents. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she translated it. My colleague Yun Lee translated it into English for us. And I want to just read part of this. Please do. Because I want some of the folks who listen to this podcast, imagine that you're at Kennedy Space Center. And instead of Kennedy Space Center being on the coastline, imagine it's in the middle of Virginia. Yeah. And you're at your home in the suburbs and you get this note. These villages are, quote, in the range of where satellite debris will drop. At that time, please cut off your power at home 20 minutes prior and hide at a safe area. If you see any flying objects falling from the sky, please adjust your location quickly 
to avoid any harm. If you discover any debris, this is my color because it fell on your house, please don't get close or pick them up because they could be harmful to human bodies due to the chemicals. And it's proprietary. Yeah, and it's proprietary. <laughs> Jesus. I just want to say that like that is something, this is the most breathtaking yeah. you know, broad or- statements I've ever heard. <laughs> if you find a rocket that's fallen on and crushed your home, please just report it to the authorities yeah. and Call don't get it too upset about it. Also, don't you know that orange gas that's kind of you know spewing up in the air? Don't get too close to it. It's gonna kill you. Yeah. Yeah. It's disturbing. And it's uh, very disturbing, how yeah. how long does that notice go out before the launch? Uh, we got it. That one was dated at least, I think, three days before. So you have okay. at least a few days. You have three days to move your house. Before but the, it the launch, blows but up. the advice itself of the evacuation notice <laughs> yeah. is find a safe place. Yeah. Which these are in rural communities, so you know who knows how safe that's going to be. But also, they don't give them the time because then we would know. Right. It would no, be public. Them, like, sp- so it's just like yeah, yeah, around three, four days from now, we're gonna. Yeah, yeah. Blow exactly. your house up with a missile. In prior 20 minutes, you know, take yeah. take cover. So it's it's pretty wild. It's something that hopefully the Chinese will stop doing. Yeah. Uh, I know they've been testing grid fins on a couple of their rockets to at least control <laughs> the I wonder descent. where they got that design. <laughs> no, right? One of our emails. <laughs> yeah, somebody, somebody, some screenshots on Twitter, I guess. Yeah, mm-hmm. looking at too close to Tom Cross's photos. <laughs> yeah. So the takeaway here is hopefully the attention to all of this. Mm-hmm helps the Chinese government to Do reconsider yeah. from a human relations standpoint yeah. and understanding that dropping rockets on people's mm. albeit rural but still people's homes yeah. is not a good idea. I and mean, this isn't the first time. No, it's not. So Yeah, it's not. This problem has happened a couple of times at Baikonur but for different reasons. It's not like the coastal reason, mm, you know what I mean? Right. But China needs to do something about this and given their record human rights and stuff that's a whole nother issue yeah but i do hope this publicity and it's really cool to see that you did an article about it because that'll you know, spread the word and did you ask anything like did you guys try to figure out is there any compensation like is somebody we, gonna yeah check? we did look into yeah. compensation it really wasn't clear what mm-hmm. the rules are that wouldn't um, be a public thing that yeah, would be like a hey you sign this, we give you ten thousand. And like the Chinese equivalent of Wikipedia is n- not very clear on mm-hmm. exactly how people get paid out. They had some language about if rocket debris, you know, were to kill someone, what mm-hmm. the compensation was, but even that wasn't super clear. Right. And so, yeah, it's it's not like I'm really hoping that these poor villagers get their houses rebuilt and they I get compensated so for yeah. all of this. Yeah. Because that's a pretty disturbing incident. Unfortunately, there may even be health implications if all of this there will absolutely toxic be. gases yes. are just floating around in the area. I just want to remind our listeners and you know, just cap this episode by reminding people that the first stage of a rocket is a missile. And yeah. if it's coming at your direction, that missile is coming at you. Yeah, you know what I mean? Fast. The whole idea of moving quickly <laughs> yeah, is something that a lot of people pointed out, rightly so on Twitter, yeah. that... I, I like even possible. in my peak athleticism could never outrun or move in time. No, and where are these villagers going to go? So another location where they can get hit. Yeah, it's a, you know it's crazy, but I think it's really important. And I just want to thank you for all the coverage you do because I feel like you highlight the business aspect. It brings a lot more eyes on the space program. Thank I think you. that ultimately helps everyone, especially NASA. You know, NASA is becoming a big partner of the private industry. They, I mean, they work hand in hand now. Right. Um, I mean, I had Jim Brian Stein talks a lot about public private right? partnerships. Yes. And he's been a big proponent of it, which I'm happy about. And it just give us your final take on the, the look at outlook on business in 2020. What's like, you know, one major thing we should be looking out for? What's going to be the, the thing of 2020? I think I'd say the thing of 2020 is is split. And I'd say that it's only necessarily split because it's two very different things that are going to be notable in 2020. One is the clarity into human space flight as a business. Okay. I think the idea of commercial crew, we recently had all this discussion about mm-hmm. how much NASA is going to be charged by Boeing and SpaceX mm-hmm. for their secret. Disputed numbers. Right, disputed right? numbers. But yeah. I mean, thankfully, I was able to confirm through a national official mm-hmm. uh, that the OIG numbers were pretty spot on. So they were. They were pretty spot on. I don't know if you no, saw No, I'm, I'm glad you're bringing this up because on the last episode of Last Week in Space, Chris and I, it was right after the mm-hmm. OIG report, we were all still waiting for Boeing's response. And we did get some of a response. It was basically like those numbers are wrong. 
Right. So, and NASA was like, we're not. Overstated was the language yeah, yeah. they kept using. So, yeah. Mike, you're telling us now. No, no, no. A pretty a solid source of mm-hmm. mine. A NASA what are official, the estimates? We're, let's call uh, them estimates. Yeah. Just call, I mean, call them estimates mm-hmm. because, again, even NASA would call them estimates at yeah. this point. It's not yeah. in their books They're not going to be specific numbers. But no. the per, when you break down permission costs, and, and this is where Boeing disputes it. They talk a mm-hmm. little bit about how much cargo is included, you know, how that should be valued. And, and there, I think there's a decent there's amount a lot room for of discussion factors. there. Yeah. Yeah. But the basic principles of what the requirements for each of the launches were for mm-hmm. astronauts, 100 kilograms of car- cargo is pretty straightforward. Both companies have to comply by that. Mm-hmm. And the OIG estimate for SpaceX was $55 million a seat, which is actually below yeah, what NASA had what uh, a lot pr- of people promoted thought. it yeah. as, which yeah. was $58 million per person. Mm-hmm. And Boeing's came in at $90 million Nine or ten mil above the Russian price. Yeah, even even generously, at least a couple mil, because the Russians probably are in the ballpark of eighty-two million dollars now. Yeah, which is awkward, Mike, because a lot of the big sell on this commercial crew program has been the fact that hey, we're paying the Russians eighty-two million, but we shouldn't be doing that. But now we're going to be paying. I mean, I see it as a point of contention because of this. The yeah. way they sold the commercial crew program. And then, no, of course, this OIG report comes out and it's like, well, Boeing is actually charging us more. And the- yeah, I think at the end of the day, NASA's focus and repeated focus is do we have the capability to launch our own astronauts? And can we do it at a competitive price? Right. I think you can actually make a decent argument for Boeing's price being competitive, basically, mm-hmm. with the Russians. Yeah, and it's competitive. Especially in the future. Plus, those are American as, jobs and right, et cetera, et cetera. And in the, in the value that they're providing, I'd say, is pretty great. Yeah. Don't doesn't take anything away from SpaceX and and how much cost effectiveness you get out of flying on a Crew Dragon. Mm-hmm. That's pretty impressive, and right. I think there, you can't take anything away from that either. So, I would say the the interesting takeaway, and and NASA I think would point out that going into this, they knew that Boeing would be more costly than SpaceX, just broadly speaking. The Atlas V is naturally naturally more expensive than the Falcon 9. That's, that's one aspect. Of one it. aspect. Second biggest aspect is that Crew Dragon, in many ways, was built out of Cargo Dragon. Right. And SpaceX had already received money for Cargo Dragon. Mm-hmm. Now, combined totals of how all that adds up you can dispute in a number of ways it is very disputable you know boeing definitely pointed out that this is something where they had to start from scratch in terms of developing this capsule at least what their current statements are pointing out and that nasa kind of expected you know what we're probably going to have to pay boeing a little bit more than we're going to pay spacex now 60% 60% more. I don't know if that's what they had in mind. I think that's why some folks might be upset about that. It's a startling number. Yeah, it's a little startling. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, I think that NASA is not going to be complaining when we can be flying people regularly, flying our own astronauts right. regularly, and especially the attention. And I'll circle, come home full circle back on the business things to look for in 2020. The fact that people can start flying regularly from U.S. companies Mm -hmm. is going to be something we get a lot more insight into. The value that that adds, who starts flying, who starts buying the extra seats on Starliner and Mm -hmm. Crew Dragon, who's going to take them up on that offer, whether it's private individuals or companies. Governments. uh, Governments could definitely take them up on it. So there's so much potential there. And I don't think we've really seen underneath the lid yet of how much per dollar flying a person is valuable to a company. Uh, to see we'll how see the that. success of that mission will affect the company's value. Exactly. That'll be second, interesting question. The second thing I think is, I think we're going to see the whole small satellite, small launcher side of the industry, which has gotten a lot of investment, a lot of intention in the last eight to nine years. Yeah, that's very true. I think you're going to see this mixture of consolidation and companies going public. You're going to see a lot more talk about who's going public, who's going to IPO, who's raising big amounts, you know, who's fallen behind in the race. And while Vector obviously went through a lot of turmoil earlier this year, Mm -hmm. I don't even think that was the tip of the iceberg. I think that's the iceberg in the distance of what small launchers and small spacecraft are going to see happen where both companies go public and there's a ton of added value and a t- lot of excitement and you have IPOs and or even acquisitions happening mm-hmm. and you'll have people kind of quietly fading off. So that part of the industry, I think we're going to see a lot of clarity in next year. 
Well, it's going to be an exciting year looking at human spaceflight, especially. But we really opened the can of worms of commercial spaceflight, didn't we? Yeah, um, unintentionally so. Yeah. But, you know, that's how this thing happens. Human spaceflight is, again, I argue it's the most interesting part of this business. It really, really is. And that's why people get so excited about mm -hmm. it. And it, upset. And upset, yeah. So, Mike, to close this out, what's the next launch you're going to in person? Oh, man, I don't have any guarantees of this, but I think the next launch I'll be going to is the second, third-ish Starlink mission. Okay. I don't know which, what, how you want to categorize yeah. that. But yeah, unfortunately, on the business aspect, it's not as big of a draw for my readers for me to be there in person. Yeah. So it's a pretty hard for me to justify trips to launches as yeah. much as I like to be at every single yeah. one. Yeah. I can't. And so... <laughs> That maybe in the, my, the next one I'll be going to. I'd say the the launch that I'm more likely to be going to next, which might happen after Starlink Mission Three, mm -hmm. is the first Rocket Lab launch from Wallops. Yeah, I think that's going to be a really big from a business story right. perspective. This that's going to be a big big story. That'll so, be exciting, and we can just take the train down to exactly. Virginia. So we that'll can be fun. zip on down to Virginia, <laughs> and that's. A lot closer than New, New Zealand. Zealand. Yeah. Although, Mike, that would be fun. Say it together. Oh, man. I've been, we would have to me. combine the resources of all the companies to exactly. get to New Zealand. Exactly. And it's something where I've been personally dying to go because yeah. New Zealand happens to also have world-class surf. Yeah. And they no have that place where about. they film The Hobbit, which is what I want to uh, see. Yeah. So. I mean, it has a little bit for everything. By the way, uh, Something Rocket that Peter Lab, Beck has told me many, many yeah. times. Like, I I, he doesn't have to sell it to me anymore. No. It's just trying to sell a whole trip to New Zealand is very, uh, very difficult. We're having people on the show soon um, oh, so we, we hung out at IAC he's such a cool dude and we can't wait to talk about Rocket Lab maybe after their first Wallops launch maybe you and I could get back on the pod together let's talk about it yeah that'd be great but Mike thank you so much for being on the show this was a really great conversation I learned a lot personally I'm always picking Mike's brain for business stuff in shady bars in Brooklyn <laughs> so it's nice to be in, a, in our studio doing this so I hope to have you on again and we're always excited about rocket launches Mike tell us how our followers and listeners can find you on the sheets tweets that's his Twitter account that's my Twitter handle how do you spell probably it? the <laughs> most uh, the easiest place to find me uh, that's at t-h-e-s-h-e-e-t-z T-W-E-E-T-Z. Please find it. It's a great feed. Oh, man. That was a, I never had to read it out loud. <laughs> I uh, wanted to have you on the show just for you to do that. You yeah. should find me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty open to talking to anybody who's active in the space yeah, industry. Yeah, uh, Mike. And Mike talks to a lot of young people, too, who are, who are interested in the business. Hit Mike up on Twitter. And he's got a lot of information. Been a really great resource for, for me personally. So thank you. Thank you for having me on the show, oh, I'm Robin. Glad. I love uh, it. This for, is Super Cluster is doing amazing stuff. Thank you. So thank you guys for doing what you Keep do. Keep them retweets coming, Mike. Oh, you know. <laughs> you guys produce beautiful content. Appreciate it. Not just quality content, but beautiful content. Mm. And I appreciate we that. We aim high. Thank you, Mike. <laughs>